Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee. Welcome to The Payoff. I'm Antonia Cerejido. And I'm Chris Duffy. This show is your audio companion to all of Mike's money and personal finance coverage on the web at mike.com slash payoff. And this week, it's time to talk about freelancing and the gig economy. I have been waiting for this episode. (laughs) As a full-time freelancer, this is my world. You and a lot of other folks too, Chris, but it's not even just full-time freelancers. We're going to talk about side hustles too, like me hosting the show. This is a side hustle. Yeah. And in our first segment, we're going to talk through all the tips and special tricks that we've both learned about getting the most from our non-traditional work. Then we'll turn to the gig economy. You know, on-demand jobs even more freelance than regular freelance work. And we've got an expert ready to tell us about what that experience is really like. Harry Campbell, the rideshare guy. I always wonder what rideshare driving for Uber or Lyft would be like. And I can't wait to hear from Harry. And then to close out the show, we're going to answer your questions about freelancing, side hustles, and non-traditional work. So stick around. Okay, time for our opening segment where we get over concerns and confusion about something in the world of money. So I've talked a lot on this show about how crazy my life is as a full-time freelancer, cobbling together an income from different jobs, gigs, and opportunities. So I'm really excited that we are devoting a whole segment to this topic. And there are a lot of other Americans who will be interested too. In fact, 55 million Americans did some kind of freelance work in 2016. That's nearly 35% of the U.S. workforce, according to a survey from Upwork in partnership with the Freelancers Union. Wow, that's that's a lot higher than I expected. 35% is a lot. Yeah, more than one in every three U.S. workers. Yeah, so that includes people who are like full-time freelancers like you and people who do part-time and short-time contract work like me. Okay, so let's start with full-time freelancing. Okay, so obviously this is your wheelhouse. What are your top tips for being a freelancer? If you don't get a traditional paycheck, I think... The number one thing that you have to start thinking about is tracking down your money, Um, because the nice part of having a regular job is, you know, you get a paycheck, you know when it's coming in. A lot of times you even get a direct deposit. So you just it shows up in your bank account. For me, the, the most important one is making sure that you get paid. So I have a Google spreadsheet that has all of my income that I've earned. And then I have a little form on that spreadsheet that says has been paid, has not yet been paid, but has been invoiced or has not yet been invoiced. And that is like crucial. That's the biggest difference that I didn't expect when I started freelancing is that I was going to have to become an accountant, basically. Right. Because you pretty quickly learn if you don't do that, then you're like, did they pay me? I don't know, but I know I have no money. And that's not good at all. No. And do you do using only the money that you had from the month before for that current month? Yeah. So I don't do that as much as I just kind of try my best to be reasonable with the money that's coming in and, and kind of stay on top of what I'm spending and what I'm earning. But I think the the number one tip 
like that is you got to have some sort of system for organizing your money because when I was teaching, I didn't make a lot of money, but I made enough to live on. And when that money came in, it was, like I said, it was really easy to keep track of. But also they were doing all this stuff with my money that I didn't realize, right? Like they were withholding taxes. They were putting money into a retirement account for me. Like they were doing all these things that now I do on my own. So when money comes in, it's not just the end of the story for me. I don't just start spending. Now I have to be like, okay, put it into a tax account, put it into a retirement account, put it into an emergency account. So that's kind of only the first part of the story. The other tip that I have with full-time freelancing is especially when you first get started, you got to tell people that you're doing this because so much of the work comes from friends and family and acquaintances and, and loose acquaintances. So like I put out there like, hey, I'm writing, I'm doing comedy, I'm hosting things, I'm doing all this stuff. And I felt like it was really important and I still feel like even it's been years, it's Mm -hmm. been more than five years that I've done this full time, just this stuff. And still people are like, oh, that's what you do? (laughs) And then a lot of times those like, those people will be the ones where they're like, oh, my office has a thing where we need someone for this. We have a holiday party, We, we need someone to tell jokes or they're starting a new podcast. Will you help them out with that? Like. Those are the kind of jobs that end up paying the bills. And I feel like only some of them do you get by applying. Right. A lot of them come that I would have never even known existed. So I always advise people like put it out in the world, like post on Facebook. Hey, I'm doing this thing. I'm pursuing my dream. I'm taking more time for this, whatever it is. Um, Put it out in the world so people know because you'd be surprised. Well, you also have a weekly newsletter. Yeah. And honestly, one of the reasons I did that was, well, one, as a comedian, I had shows and wanted people to come to them. But two, it was just a way that I could let people know what I was up to. And as a result, I've gotten a lot more work because of it. How do people join your newsletter? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, if you're listening, I do have a website, chrisduffycomedy.com. Um, and actually, that's another good point. It's hard to imagine what freelance work you could be doing where having a website wouldn't be useful. Right. I find that for me, like having a source where people can click on. And, and one of the most important parts of your website is like the about page. Because even friends and family are kind of like, I vaguely know what Antonia does, but when you give them the paragraph and they can send that to someone else. And a lot of times I have a contact me page, which has like my email address and stuff like that. But I get a lot of work through that as well, much more than I would have expected. Through the website. Through the website, through acquaintances. Those are two, the two biggest ways that I get jobs and jobs that pay really well are through those two ways which is not at all what I expected. I thought for sure my main source of income would be coming from I find a job online and then apply for it. Um, yeah. But that's just not how it's worked. Yeah. What about for you as someone who is not full-time freelance, but you have a regular job and then you have this side hustle, which you're doing at the moment? <laughs> I think the trickiest thing uh, about thus far about having a side hustle has been to has been scheduling and making sure that no one feels that I am chafing or not or not doing the right amount of time i think communication is really clear i would not be able to do this side hustle unless my bosses understood that i was doing this and are cool with it if if you're going to take on a side hustle it has to be okay with your main hustle or else you're gonna get you're just not gonna be able to do it and i think you can often make your main employer the main source of income see it as a plus yeah Like, it's often good for them that you're out there doing these other things and promoting them. For example, listen to Antonia (laughs) on Latino USA. Yeah. Everyone should listen to Latino USA. It's in English. A lot of people don't know that, which is very infuriating. But yeah, so 
with Latino USA, it's my number one priority. And then a lot of that has to do with like good planning and a lot of communication, which is something that I sometimes struggle with, but that I feel like I've gotten better at. And then the other thing is I am so used to having a steady check that comes in every two weeks. And then the, so the, the checks for the payoff have, because you send an invoice, they come in at different times. I sometimes think of that I have money when I don't have it. Mm. And I'm like, I can totally pay for this because I'm about to get this check coming in. But you don't know when the check's coming in. Yeah. And then you could have the possibility of overdraft and all these things. And so I try now to think about my side hustle as money that I don't necessarily have, mm-hmm. but that I can maybe fall back on. That way I don't rely on it because then you get into a whole bunch of problems. Yeah. One of the things that I, as soon as I started freelancing, a thing that I did way more often is log into my bank account. Yeah. Right. Like there's so much more of checking, like, did that check get in? Did that check go out? You have to be so much more on top of that. Totally. Um, which is actually one of the reasons sometimes people ask me why my wife and I didn't combine accounts. And that's the number one reason why we didn't is because for me to know if I've been paid or if things are right, I kind of need to see the bank balance and be like, that seems low. Right. Or, oh, I just got paid. That's why it's so much higher than it was yesterday. Right. And that's the main thing with freelancing is you just have to be way more aware of tracking where dollars come from and where, where what's going to what. Mm-hmm. But also in terms of if you want to take up a side hustle, I think that it has to be something that complements your main hustle and has to be something that is like additive. Yeah. And let's segue into talking about bills, which yeah. are a really regular piece here. But before we do that, I also just want to say that I think the nice part about freelance that and, and side hustles that is important that ties into the emotions and the money part is I think it causes you to focus on what kind of life do you want to build. So to me, the real advantage is sometimes I'll think if I won the lottery and I had a hundred million dollars, what would I do? And what I would do is so similar to what I would do when I have these like periods where I'm just working and not making any money. I'm like, oh, I would write. I would hang out with my friends. I would like take a long lunch. And the only difference is I wouldn't worry about money, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I think it's important to also, as you're building this, be like, you're not just building a career. You're also building a life. So where are the places where you want to have more time? Right. And maybe taking more time means that you make a little bit less money. Or what are the things that are important to you? Because like for me, I perform a lot at night. So it means that I very rarely am like at home with my wife from 8 to 11. Like those are times when I'm often out of the house. But it's really important that we like spend time together. So we, I try my hardest to make sure that we have dinner together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just for me personally. But I think when you think about those things, those ultimately are also business and work decisions. Right. They all tie in together. Right. And I think you sometimes can't forget that when you just have a job where you're like, that's my contract. These are my hours. Right. You're not thinking about the, the personal side. Yeah. So one of the few things that is predictable about being a freelancer, are you know, your bills are going to come. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, like, I know I have these set bills. I have um, my rent. I have the uh, insurance on my apartment, renter's insurance. I have a couple of different really predictable bills for my business, right? Like I have like podcast hosting. I have the podcast hosting website. I have the website. I have a couple of other things that are like that that come in every month. And so I almost think about all those added together as like my minimum income for a month, which isn't really true because I have to spend money on like food and entertainment too. But that is kind of what I think of as like, if you can hit that, then you're probably going to be okay in a month. Yeah. How do you think about your bills? I mean, because I have a steady income, typically it's a a more automatic thing. Mm. But I I do think the question for me has been like, do I take that side hustle money and do I put it into my Roth IRA, which is honestly what I should be doing? Yeah. 
Or, you know, do I put it more more into my savings account? And I think that the first impulse you have is like, I want to use this money to like buy clothes or buy d- dinners. Actually, like dinners is really a big yeah. one. But I think that trying to have a cushion is the most important thing, especially because, you know, I, public radio does not pay a lot of money. Yeah. Like, God bless. And it, I'm probably never going to make a lot of money in my life because my job is not that kind of job. So I think that every single side hustle goes towards security, mostly. I think as what you're saying and what we've been talking about this whole time, it, it all kind of leads to this idea that, you know, part of figuring out your career, no matter what you do, is figuring out what's important to you and what you want to be doing. And freelancing and side hustles put that question under a magnifying glass. And it's the same with money, sort of, you know, it's like, what what do you want to spend time on? What do you want to what what's most important to you? You should prioritize where you put your money. Yeah, your money is fundamentally the way you use your money is fundamentally a reflection of your values. And these I think thinking about it creatively, whether you have a full time job or whether you have 40 different jobs that combine together, that lets you have much more capability of being happy, although it also definitely adds stress and (laughs) has a little bit of that, too. Listen, that was a lot of info about how we do things. But when we come back, we're going to call up an expert who is deep in the world, one of the fastest forms of freelancing, rideshare driving. Stick around. Welcome back. So we talked through how Chris and I handle freelancing in our lives, but what about people who work in the so-called gig economy? Yep, more and more people are using services like Uber and Lyft to turn driving their cars into a cash flow. And to help us understand more about what that's like, we're talking to Harry Campbell, founder and CEO of the Rideshare Guy blog and podcast, a site dedicated to empowering drivers and helping them to earn more money by working smarter, not harder. Harry, thanks so much for being here. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. So you have a kind of unique path to where you are now. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, definitely. So I actually started driving for Uber and Lyft on the side about three years ago, which I guess that makes me really old in rideshare years because most people <laughs> don't make it that long. But uh, I was at the time I was working full time as an engineer. So I was an aerospace engineer working for Boeing, you know, sort of sitting, yeah, sort of sitting in the cubicle, checking out the spreadsheets, doing the normal engineer thing. And uh, I had been taking Uber and Lyft as a passenger a lot, and I decided to give it a shot as a driver. So sort of on my nights and on my weekends, I would go and drive for Uber and Lyft. So it's always been part time and really sort of like you described, basically a side hustle. And when I first started doing it, I realized that, hey, you know, this isn't the toughest job in the world being an Uber driver, but it is a little bit harder than it looks. And I started looking for online communities or forums or blogs, and I couldn't find a single website out there that was really detailing the experience of what it was like to be a driver and how much money you could make and you know, the good and the bad. And so I decided to start my own. What do you think is the most attractive part of ride sharing to you? I think the most attractive part is definitely the flexibility. I don't know if most people actually realize just how flexible driving for Uber is. I mean, if I wanted to leave this interview right now, I could go flip my app on and probably have a ride within two minutes, go do a ride and then log off and not work for six months again if I wanted to and go work 80 hours a week if I want the week after that. So you really do sort of have the ultimate scheduling flexibility. Now, if you want to make the most amount of money, as you could imagine, certain hours and times and days are much more profitable than others. 
So what's been the hardest thing about ride sharing and working in the gig economy? I think the hardest thing is that a lot of people get into this looking to make a few hundred bucks a week. Uh, Uber reports and from studies we've done on our site about 50 percent of drivers do 10 or 15 hours a week or less on the platform. So a majority of drivers are really part time at this. You know, they're not mm-hmm. relying on it for their full source of income, sort of, you know, like kind of the messaging that Uber often touts. And I think that for a lot of these people, what they don't realize is, you know, they might be looking to make two or three hundred bucks a week, yet they have all the same reporting requirements and the insurance requirements and the tax liabilities of a regular business owner who could be making, you know, a million dollars a year. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that's the thing that that maybe people get a little overwhelmed that, you know, they're used to working a traditional retail or traditional service where you get your paycheck and let's say you're making $15 an hour, taxes are taken out uh, because you're an employee and you don't have to worry about anything with a rideshare dri- as a rideshare driver. You obviously have that income number that you see, but you have to worry about gas. You have to worry about the expenses on your vehicle. You have to worry about getting extra insurance, which they call rideshare insurance and taxes. So, you know, there's trade-offs just like in any job. So we've actually talked about that on this episode for ourselves, but I didn't realize that it applied to ride sharing as well, where you kind of have to become a business yourself and there's these fixed costs and, and all of the requirements of becoming a business. That That's not what I think of when I think of ride sharing. Right. And that's exactly how most people don't think of it. <laughs> and I think that's sort of, you know, that that's a little bit of the problem. And I mean, you know, to be frank, like there is a lot of turnover in the rideshare industry. About half of all drivers quit after one year. Um, a lot of them figure things out and they're able to make it and really take advantage of that flexibility and earn the money that they want. But others, you know, they find that, hey, this isn't the right gig for me, whether it's because of some of those delayed costs that start to pop up or, you know, the other thing just to keep in mind is, and, you know, sort of what my site is all about is really strategizing, thinking about ways to earn more money because there is a little bit of skill involved. The savvier you are as a driver, and sometimes we refer to it being a little bit more cutthroat as a driver, Mm -hmm. um, which sounds a little ominous, but being more cutthroat as a driver can actually increase your earnings. You can make more money if you sort of know what you're doing. And, you know, unlike a job at Starbucks where all the cashiers are probably making the same amount from day one, you could see a lot of variability from one driver to the next, even if they're driving the same time times in the same places. They might not make triple or a quadruple, but they could easily be making 50 to 100% more. So what are some of those strategies? Well, I think the biggest thing that, you know, especially when people are first getting started, I think it's really just more about getting used to the app because, you know, drivers are rated, uh, you know, it's, Driving for Uber, sort of like I said, it's not the toughest job in the world, but it is a combination of skills, right? You have to be good at customer service. You have to be good at driving. Believe it or not, you put a lot of miles on your car as an Uber or Lyft driver. Um, You have to be good at navigation and just being a safe driver in general. And then, you know, if you're going to drive Friday, Saturday night, sort of dealing with drunk people, the obnoxious Mm -hmm. crowd, right? And that sort of falls under customer service. But, you know, when you're driving down the middle of the road, it's pretty easy. But when you're trying to pick up or drop off on a busy street and you have a passenger who wants to be let off right in front of the restaurant, but you're, you know, there's a bunch of traffic, there's cops who want to give you tickets. And, um, you know, you sort of have to navigate all that at the, at the same time. So, I mean, I think as far as those strategies, it can really 
help you make more money, you obviously want to think about the times when passengers are out and about, when demand for rides is at its highest, because as Uber passengers, I'm sure you've all seen sort of the vaunted uh, the surge pricing, right, which everybody, passengers hate, right, because yeah. you have to pay extra as a rider, but as you can imagine, drivers absolutely love surge pricing because they make more, so uh, finding those times when it's surging, and really what we've seen over the past couple of years, too, is that those Friday, Saturday night times that have typically always been very lucrative when people are demanding a lot of rides. It's also easy for, there's a lot of drivers. Uber just reported the other day that there's over 2 million drivers in the U.S. So that driver saturation has sometimes caused problems. And now what drivers really need to think about are, okay, we want to think about times, you know, passenger demand is important, but if there's 100 customers requesting rides and there's 200 drivers sitting there to fill those rides, I'm probably not going to get a request, right? So I think that really how the, some of the strategies have changed is thinking about times and places where there aren't that many drivers out. Probably a really good example of that is going to be early morning airport runs. So from about 4 to 6 a.m., nobody is nobody should be out and about at that time unless they're going <laughs> to the airport, right? It's yeah. too late. It's after the bars and it's too early for work. So the only, the only people on the road should be Uber drivers and people going to the airport. And that's really what we find. Those, there's no traffic at that time. Those rides tend to be longer and just a lot of drivers aren't willing to get up at that time. So that's been like a nice lucrative uh, spot for a lot of drivers. So how much of being the highest paid driver is also being the highest rated driver? Or are those two kind of separate metrics? Yeah. And, you know, one of the unfortunate things about being a driver is that in the past, frankly, being a high rated driver didn't necessarily have a great bottom line on your impact. There was if you were a 4.99 star rated driver, you could just as easily be making just as much money as a 4.6 star rated driver, which is so 4.6 is the bare minimum. That's sort of the cutoff to remain uh, an Uber driver, which a lot of people aren't even aware of. Yeah, it seems Um, really high. Yeah. So, I mean. You know, that's one of the, uh, you know, we sort of talked about, you know, some of the benefits of flexibility and, you know, being able to set your own hours and earn. But I mean, that's there's definitely some complaints that Uber drivers have. I mean, the customer rating system is one that drivers are not big fans of because, you know, your livelihood depends on you maintaining a 4.6. Uh, you know, I guess I said that rating does, doesn't matter too much, but I, I sort of lied because you want to maintain a 4.6. Otherwise, you'll be deactivated. And when you think about it, you'll if you go on Yelp or TripAdvisor and you see a restaurant that's four stars, that's a place that you might eat at. Right. But a four star Uber driver is actually deactivated. I've eaten at a three star many times. <laughs> but, yeah, that's interesting. It's I would have never realized that the uh, the scale isn't really one to five. The scale is four point six to four point nine nine nine. But so you really see something like ride sharing as a as a part time thing. Right. Well, I guess I would say that it really depends on your situation. And that's one of the things that I've sort of always felt just personally and with the site in general is that we're really not trying to tell anyone, hey, here's how you should do it. It's just more based off of my experience and people that write for our site, you know, our real life experiences. This is how I've used it in the past. And, you know, personally, I, I look at it and I see it as, hey, okay, if I'm trying to make the most amount of money and have the most flexibility where, you know, I don't need to work this week and I can take a week or two off, then I think part-time is the best for that because you can imagine if you're trying to target the most profitable hours, okay, let's say you decide I'm going to work Friday, Saturday nights whenever there's a holiday that pops up and that equals about 20 hours. If you need to work more than that in a full-time capacity, you start having to work some of those lower profitable hours, right? Those lower earning hours. Maybe you have to work a Tuesday, Thursday afternoon here and there when it's not as profitable. So I just think that the best way to take a 
advantage of what Uber offers is to be in the part-time sort of arena. But at the same time, there are lots of full-time drivers who are doing it. And I think that they're very grateful to have this opportunity um, just because, you know, they may not be able to find work elsewhere. That may just be a temporary gig that they need for three months. I mean, there aren't a lot of jobs that you can go in and say, okay, I'm going to work three months on the dot and tell that to your boss when you're work when you're getting started. You know, not many people want to hire a full-time employee for three months only. And so I think depending on your situation, it does work for a lot of people. So as a passenger, uh, what's the best thing you can do to make your driver like you? Well, I would say that the best thing you can do is probably just be sort of respectful of their, respectful in general, sort of of their time, of their car, of the person. Because I think that's one thing that you sort of start to get a little bit jaded as a driver is that, you know, you are doing this service, right? If Even if you're ferrying people around Friday, Saturday nights, they're drunk, they're having a good time, but it does feel good to get home, people home safely, right? Someone's having a bad night, a bad day of work. You can sort of talk them down, coax them down, sometimes drivers like to joke that it's part driving, part therapy, because you really are, you know, it's sort of an intimate bond, right? When you get into the back of someone's car as a passenger, you see their rating, you see their picture, they see your picture, and you sort of have this instant connection. So I think that, you know, that goes a long way. And for the riders who sort of disrespect your time or your car, and it's even sometimes it's small things. I mean, for example, as a driver, when I pull up to pick up a passenger, I actually don't get paid for that wait time, right? So if I'm sitting there downstairs waiting for you to come out, um, that's all time that's unpaid. And I could obviously be, you know, drivers are really only paid when they're moving with a passenger in the car. So it really doesn't benefit a driver or a passenger to say, call a ride and then make their driver sit there for 10 minutes and then come down. Right. So it's sort of things like that that sort of are respectful, um, you know, of the driver's time, of their pay, of their car. I think that that can go a long ways. And drivers, you know, not every honestly, a lot of passengers aren't. So I think for the passengers that are drivers really respect that. Once I was in Atlanta, and I was doing a show there and I uh, was at a hotel and didn't have a car. So I took a, a lift to mm-hmm. a restaurant that was called Big Daddy Dish. It was a soul food restaurant. And the lady was like, this restaurant smells really good. You've been <laughs> here before? And I was like, no, I haven't. And then she rolled down the window. and was like, is this restaurant good to people coming out? And they were like, it's great. And then she dropped me off and then she came back and parked and we had lunch together. Really? <laughs> and I was awesome. like, that feels like a real success story. I was like, this feels like a commercial for Lyft. <laughs> It was great. Are you sure you don't secretly work for Lyft? I don't. (laughs) Do you secretly work for Lyft or Uber? I guess you very, very openly work for Uber. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I guess what I would say is like our sort of relationship with the companies is, you know, obviously I'm a driver for Uber and Lyft. I've tried other services, though, Postmates, DoorDash. And that's one of the nice things about being, you know, in this independent contractor relationship. You can sort of openly tell Uber, yes, I also drive for Lyft. And anyone who's an Uber or Lyft passenger, especially in the bigger cities, has probably seen drivers rolling around with Uber and Lyft trade dress on their windows, right? So they've probably seen drivers that have both stickers or stickers back to back or drivers flipping the stickers really quickly. So, I mean, about uh, 50 to 60% of drivers, when we've surveyed our audience, about 50 to 60% of drivers actually do drive for multiple services. So there are a lot of drivers already working for Uber and Lyft. I will say that, you know, Uber is sort of the top dog. It's the busier service. A lot of drivers get most of their rides and make most of their money with Uber. But, you know, for that that story that you shared is actually uh, pretty poignant because a lot of drivers do prefer Lyft because they feel like it's a little bit more of a driver-centric, sort of more that community feel, that culture uh, seems to be embodied a little bit better by Lyft than Uber. So 
one of the things that's always kind of stood out to me about any of these rideshare services is that as a passenger, it feels like you're interacting with an employee of the company. Mm -hmm. But in practical terms, as you described before, you know, these people are independent contractors and they're not treated by the company as employees. Right. So one, two questions about that. One, how do you feel about that in general? The fact that, you know, you're not getting employee benefits, but also, uh, since that is what it's like right now, where should on-demand workers turn for things that a traditional worker would get from an employee, like retirement, insurance, the safety net, all those other things like that? Yeah, so that's a great point because I think that the way you put it is really great, right? Because most passengers and drivers sort of do feel like, you know, this, hey, this driver represents the company. This might as well be an employee for Uber. But on the driver's side, it's actually a little different. I think that since a majority of drivers are part-time, I'm part-time, I don't want to be an employee for Uber. I don't like the thought, you know, employee, that term sort of brings up the connotation that, hey, sit in, you know, which I've done in the past, right? Sit in a cubicle for nine to five, listen to your boss, uh, take a short lunch break, things like that. And get health so think, insurance. <laughs> well, that might be a good thing, but <laughs> all of the other, uh, all of the other <laughs> things that come with, uh, you know, having a boss and sitting a cubicle, you know, I think that's, you know, you have a lot of people driving for Uber and Lyft that have really diverse backgrounds. People always ask me, what does the typical Uber and Lyft driver look like? And it's so different. That's one of the cool things about driving for Uber is that they don't care about your age, your sex, your ethnicity, um, you know, your religion, anything. They will literally take anyone and everyone as long as you can pass a background check, you have an eligible vehicle, uh, you have a smartphone, right? So it's a very low barrier to entry, which a lot of people really like because they may have had trouble getting hired in other work in other industries industries or whatever it might be. And so for those drivers who are coming into this industry, the one thing that does sort of tie them all together is that they do value that flexibility. I mean, driving for Uber is different. It's a very different experience than working, uh, you know, a regular nine to five day job. And I think a lot of people really value that. That's sort of that flexibility, I think, is what ties a lot of them together. And so a lot of those part time drivers really fear that, hey, if I'm an employee, it might be like that employee experience I'm used to. I don't like that. I don't want that. So a majority of drivers, myself included, actually don't want to be employees. They like the independent contractor setup, but at the same time, they sort of want to be true independent contractors. And I think that's where, you know, it gets a little bit into the nitty gritty, but from this, from the outside, it looks like Uber drivers are independent contractors, right? They can set their own hours. They'd be their own boss, right? They can drive whenever and wherever they want. But as you start doing it, you realize that, Hey, these guys at Uber are actually pretty smart. They know what they're doing. Um, <laughs> you know, they've sort of lowered rates for drivers and you've probably seen it as a passenger that, you know, taking an Uber is now cheaper than it's ever been, right? Over the past few years, the prices have continually come down. And on the driver's side, that's obviously not as good because drivers aren't making as much money. But on the back end, Uber is offering incentives and bonuses. So if I, I'm here in Los Angeles, if I drive in certain places and in certain times, I can actually make a 30% bonus. I can make a 50% bonus on every ride that Uber essentially is subsidizing that ride for the passenger. So now even though I have that flexibility to drive whenever and wherever I want, I sort of have to listen to what Uber says and drive where they want me to at the times they want me to in order to make the most amount of money. And as you can imagine, drivers are just like everyone else. They care about how much money they're making. So they're going to try and drive those times that are most profitable. So lastly, it seems like you're suggesting that in terms of benefits like health and, and retirement, health insurance and retirement, 
really Uber should be seen as a separate additional thing. That is not where you want to be going if you're someone who is looking to have benefits or things like that. Well, it's definitely, you know, the thing is there's no easy solution because sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum, you do have the full-time drivers, right? I mean, let's say there's about 10 to 20% of drivers are full-time doing 40, 50 hours a week or more. And all of those drivers, they don't have other jobs, right? So they may not be getting health insurance from another company. They may be, um, you know, if they were to get injured on the job, that's their main source of income. And that's where workers comp would really come in. And, you know, as a full-time driver, someone doing 50 hours a week, like I said, you don't have that schedule flexibility. You probably have a pretty set schedule if you're doing 50 hours a week. A lot of drivers that are driving that many hours, you know, they might take an early lunch break or come back late after a nap. But for the most part, they have a pretty strict schedule. So I would actually say that a lot of those full-time drivers are very, you know, sort of resemble employees already. They're just not getting any of of the benefits. They're just not getting any of the health insurance, the, the workers comp, uh, the unemployment, if they get fired, things like that, that a traditional employee would get. And so those are typically, you know, the ones who are sort of uh, cheering the loudest for drivers to become employees. And there are a couple big, you know, there's a huge lawsuit right now that's called O'Connor versus Uber in California that's sort of um, gone back and forth a lot, but that's really what it's about. It's for these drivers who do feel like uh, they're employees. So, I mean, I, I don't know that there's a great answer to it. But, um, you know, I think that some drivers probably are employees and for a majority, they probably aren't, but they kind of want to be actual independent contractors. Well, if someone's listening right now and they are a rideshare driver, or if they are interested in becoming a rideshare driver, how can they uh, find out more about this from you? Where can they find out more? For sure. So we have the website, therideshareguy.com. We also have a podcast that you can find in iTunes or Stitcher. And then we're also on YouTube, too. So you can type in the Rideshare Guy into YouTube. So really, if you just type the Rideshare Guy into any search box, we should pop up and uh, you can learn all about driving for Uber. Because, you know, I think that's really what we're trying to do is kind of highlight, hey, uh, you know, there's just like any job, there's positives and negatives. But I mean, there's two million people doing this. So I think that the positives greatly outweigh the negatives. And if you sort of go in, doing a little bit of due diligence, doing a little bit of research, you can really set yourself up for success. I think it's the people that sort of jump into it and kind of expect this to be really easy that sometimes struggle. But fortunately now, you know, there's sites like mine, there's blogs, there's forums, there's tons of resources for drivers. Even Uber and Lyft support has gotten a lot better and the information they provide has gotten better. So, you know, if you're if you're willing to put in a little work, you can definitely uh, have a have a pretty good experience. Harry, thank you so much. I feel like we learned so much from talking to you. And uh, if you're listening, I hope that you will search The Rideshare Guy on any and all platforms. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Okay, it's time now for our final segment where we answer questions that listeners have sent us via email. Yeah, and there were lots of different types of questions that we received. We always, always appreciate them, so please keep on sending us questions. Please do. And here's what most people wrote to us about. The most common question was, how do I get started in freelancing if I want to transition away from a traditional job? And lucky for us, we have Mike's vast trove of payoff advice to turn to, and I found a great article with practical tips for getting started as a freelancer. I wish that I'd had something like this when I started. I know it can be really scary at the start. Okay, so here is a list of three must-dos for starting out as a freelancer. Number one, you have to talk to as many people as you possibly can, which is true. I mean, this can be really hard for introverts, 
Um, but I think it's important to remember that no matter what field you're in, your clients will be people who sit next to you on trains or planes, CEOs, you cold email and friends of friends. So strike up a conversation. It gets easier. Neither you nor I is introverted. So I think that's... Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it does get easier. Trust them. Yeah. I also think that like talking to people is the most important thing and to just not be afraid of not just to st- strike up a conversation, but to talk about your work. Yeah. I think that there's this real fear of promoting yourself and seeming braggy. And I think there is a way to present your work in a way that is at once humble, but also makes it very clear what your skills are and allows other people to know that they can count on you. When I first started this and when I quit my job and told people I was a comedian, the hardest part wasn't seeming that I was braggy, but I I, I felt like when I said, when people say, what do you do? And I said I was a teacher. People were like, oh, I totally understand and great. And then when I said I'm a comedian, I felt like there was this look in people's eyes where they like took a second and like reevaluated me and were like, no, you're not. What? And it was I, I now see that that was all internal. That oh like God, I was just Chris, imagining that. And so sad. It was just people like you feel like people are judging you because you're doing something atypical. And it was more that people were just like, well, that's different. But at the time I was like, I felt like I needed to recompensate by being like, well, I haven't been on TV. Well, I yeah, sure. I don't. But it's like no one else was thinking that. So yeah. I think even sometimes the hard part can be saying it because you feel like you're bragging. Sometimes the part can be you're insecure because you're trying to do something ambitious. You know, what's another thing that's helps me a lot is doing my research about the kinds of things I want to do. Mm. So maybe if I'm not, you know, Terry Gross at age 25, that's OK. But I've listened to every episode of Fresh Air and I can talk to you at length about like, what sorts of things matter to me and what questions are good and what journalism is and all that stuff. And I think that's important. It's not just like being like, I love journalism. It's yeah. like, no, okay, imagine yourself. What is your dream gig? Where would you be doing it? Who is doing that right now? Have you listened to all of their work? Become, you know, kind of a scholar in the stuff that you want to do. And I think that makes talking so much easier because you know what you want to talk about. Yeah, I and I talked to this woman, Tara, who's now pretty high up at Comedy Central, I think. Um, But she was a couple years older than me at college. And I I just kind of cold emailed her when I was starting out. And she gave me some of the best advice, which is just everyone wants to say yes. So the the better it is for everyone is if you can make it easy for people to say yes to you. Um, And they can only say yes to you if you know what you want to do and if you're telling them that, right? Mm -hmm. Like no one goes up to a teacher and says, hey, would you like to have your own public radio show? Or would you like to have a write for a TV show? No one goes up and is like trying to recruit people away. They only do that if they're like, you have the skill and I know you're trying to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, or even you don't have the skill yet, but like if you ambitiously put yourself out there, then at least you have the shot. Totally. So what else is next? What's another tip? Okay, number two, be more productive and disciplined when working for yourself. According to a recent Gallup workplace survey, 70% of American workers were, quote, not engaged in their daily work. But this won't fly when you're working for yourself. You can't afford it. Yep. One way to do this is to set a timer for four hours and try to get as much done in that span as maybe you normally would in a standard eight-hour workday in an office. Because as a freelancer, the more you produce, the more you make. And if you don't produce enough, then you don't make enough. Yes, this is so true. Definitely important. Look, the benefit. Do you do this timer thing? I, I don't do the timer thing. But what I'll say is the, one of the best parts of being a freelancer is you can wake up and spend the whole day in your underwear, but <laughs> you have to work as though you're not in your underwear. Right. And the the number one thing that I do to make sure that I'm productive is I have a to-do list, a very detailed to-do list every day. And if any item makes it past a week on the to-do list, then I break it down into smaller items. That's a good 
strategy. So like recently I found like I had on my list book stand-up gigs for uh, September. And I was like, man, this has been on here for a long time. And I realized it's because it was very generic. So then I was like, I broke it down. It's like email this theater, email this right. theater, email this theater. And then it was super easy. And in the day I like sent those seven or 10 emails that I needed to send and I got the gigs that I needed. But when it was generic, I would just kept putting it off. So have really clear, actionable items and then make sure you do them. That's that's my biggest tip. What's yeah. your tip for being productive? I think for me, what's really important is have, being able to take breaks. Yeah. So it's the same thing of like taking lots of tasks or, and then breaking it down. I also feel like I, this is a mini thing, but I love uh, like taking a walk. Mm. Just like a change of scenery will like make me feel a lot better. And so if I'm ever feeling like I'm not being productive, I'll like go on a little walk. And then I'm like all of a sudden getting crap done. Yeah. And if you're someone like me who's maybe a little bit more externally motivated, right? Mm. People who are internally motivated, I assume they just like power through things and then they're done and weeks oh, early. Yeah. I imagine it's like hard to be external if you're externally motivated and be a freelancer. So the way that I avoid just like watching Netflix all day or convincing myself that like, well, it's part of my job to promote uh, on Facebook. I better write jokes on Facebook all day. The way that I make it is I schedule at least one phone call or in-person meeting with a person each day because one of the inevitable things that someone says when they're small talking with you is like so what have you been doing today and then i have to have an answer for that and for me i found that to be really effective okay so what's uh, what's our third big piece of advice for freelancers the number three piece of advice is learn the real value of smart risk so the freelancers need to produce can lead to one of two emotions, right? The first is anxiety that you won't make enough to support yourself without a steady paycheck. However, in order to make it, you need to side with the second emotion, which is the excitement of knowing that your potential earning is limitless. Yeah, so if you're not feeling it at first, which do what a lot of people do, fake it till you make it. What's the time that you had a job that you accepted that you weren't maybe sure that you could do? No, well, this job. Really? <laughs> well, no, I was just, you know, taking on an entire other podcast when I have a full-time job. I was like, am I going to be able to to do that? I really wanted to. Mm -hmm. And um, you're great at it. Oh, thanks so much. It's true. <laughs> but but I think, I, I mean, I did do like a cost analysis. Like if I work this many, like if I work more weekends, is that going to be okay? Is it worth it for the experience and for the money? And it turned out to be great. I mean, but I, I don't think I've ever, it's not a constant worry about me worry that i have about side hustles i don't know yeah yeah for me i always one book that i recommend or it's actually a speech but they turned it into a book is neil gaiman's make good art it's a great uh it's a speech that he gave at an art school as like a commencement address but then they turned it into like an illustrated book and um, one of the things that he talks about in there is he's like any time in your career when you have a decision the question you should ask yourself is does this get me closer to the mountain the mountain being what you want to go to and at certain times in your career the same decision will be getting you closer to your mountain and then later on, it could be further away. And so that's kind of what I always try and think about is like big picture, is this getting me closer to the mountain? And a lot of times, the thing that gets me closer to the mountain is also really scary because I'm like, I'm not sure that I'm going to be good at this. Yeah. But then I'm like, even if I fail, I'll learn while I'm failing. Totally. Um, so I think that's a that's a big part of being a, a freelancer. And also just if you're excited about something, I mean, that's what you were talking about the anxiety versus the excitement. Like, mm -hmm. you know, chase the the good feeling, the like, oh, my God, I've never hosted something. And I want to I was I think I've saw, I talked about this on this podcast. I was really nervous that Alan wanted to hire me to produce this podcast and not host it. And I was like, I already produce. A I don't want to produce a second podcast. Yeah. And then we had like a really awkward conversation on the phone where I realized that they were asking me to host. And I was so excited. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is, I think. Um, I always forget that when you do work like this, 
then you end up meeting people and that can end up being way better than the money at all, right? Like I'm like, oh, this is so fun to do things with Antonia. And now when you're Lady Ira Glass, <laughs> I'm going to be like, I got a story for you on this Latino life. This Latino life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I probably won't have that story, but I'll at least be like, that's so cool that I know You're Antonia. Like, I know a Latino and I've, I'm going to tell Antonia about it. I met a Latino. This is my story. <laughs> but no, seriously, I think like making contact with people who you like and enjoy spending time with and enjoy working with, that is the most fun part of this. But it's also the most valuable part of, totally. of freelance work. That's it for today's episode. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is from Breakmaster Cylinder, and our producer is Alan Haberchak. Thank you, Alan, and thanks everyone for listening. If you want to help the show, you can do that by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review for the payoff. Also, if you have questions related to our upcoming episode on credit cards, don't forget to send them into payoffpod at mike.com. Lastly, you can find out more about us on Twitter at payoffbymike or online at mike.com slash payoff. See you next time. Woot woot!